All right, so last week, um, we, um, I introduced us uh, to his premise of what he's doing here and what he's after in terms of teaching us about what it means to work and labor in the Lord. Um, and that touches each of our, our hearts here because we, we all do this. We've all been called to work. Chapter 1, just as a, a view, really quick recap, um, he emphasized what was going on in the first two chapters of Genesis. And that dominion mandate that we are to, um, we are to fill, we are to uh, multiply in the earth. And we are to work and, uh, and keep. Um, that's what was given to, to Adam. Work and keep the garden. Part of this fulfillment was, in course, multiplying and fulfilling the earth. Fulfilling the earth by extending the glory of God throughout the entire world, throughout the nations of what they would become. So thinking here pre-fall. Um, and just because the fall did come, just because Adam and mankind did fall and sin, it doesn't mean that work itself diminishes in terms of what it's supposed to be doing. Um, again, one of the key takeaways last week was we as Christians should be reflecting the character of God in our work. That's what it largely means to work as unto the Lord. Well, this uh, week we're going to talk about in chapter 2, and again, this, the title of this book that we're going through is Work and Our Labor in the Lord by James Hamilton, one of the, uh, uh, he's the prof professor of biblical theology at um, Southern uh, Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville. So going through it, enjoying it, it's been a, a true blessing. Well, today we're focusing on work after the fall. Um, and what he does is he kind of breaks this down into three main categories, um, talking about work in terms of What's it mean that we are fallen? And this theme of work throughout Scripture, how is that affected by it? How about futility? How has that impacted work? Has it impacted our work? Um, and then flourishing. He gives some examples of how work after the fall can still flourish as the Lord blesses it. So with that, let's... Let's consider what he talks about in terms of um, this, this understanding that we work in a fallen world. Um, and what he says is that um, we're going to see here that, that our identity and work are inseparable in, from the fact that sin has made things harder. Right? We know that. Sin has made it harder for us, and just in general, obviously, we, we need a Savior. Um, it twists everything in terms of what God has ordained and, and put into order, but it's affected our work. It's made things harder. Um, so in, in Genesis 4, he makes a, a comparison. He says, and it's actually from Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 and 7. Let me read those. Verses. He says, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. 
and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Um, in many ways, that last verse there about sin and its desire for you. Um, he described it, Moses, as it's crouching at the door. It's desires for you to overcome you, to pervert how you look at things. Indeed, to work can pervert even how you think, look at the uh, look at work. Well, what what happened with the story of Cain and Abel, right? So, um, Abel's sacrifice was accepted from the Lord. It was a sacrifice given with thanksgiving from the heart. The best portions Cain held back, and did not have regard for the Lord in his sacrifice, and so the Lord did not accept it. And and so. Long story, you know, of course it's a short story in the text, but he ends up killing Abel, right? And then he is cursed. He, he ends up being cursed, and he's driven from the ground in a sense, okay? Um, and what we see in Cain is his representation of the character of God's enemy. You know, he's reflecting the usurper, not the creator, not God himself, um, and, of course, that impacted the way he brought his offering to the Lord. But he's also, as a reflecting who, who his father is, the devil, he's realizing the curses and the threats that came out early on in Genesis. And so God made him to multiply. Um, Hamilton writes, Cain has set himself against God's purpose by killing rather than increasing life. God had mandated man to fulfill, to fill the earth, to multiply. And what's he do? He kills. He does the very opposite, Cain does. God made man to subdue the earth, and in doing so, exercise dominion over all the earth. But of course, at that time, in the context, we understand it to be the animals and to help life flourish. And instead of promoting Abel's own flourishing in his life, Cain put an end to it. Again, reflecting who his father is. By showing Cain rejecting God's purposes, Hamilton writes, the narrative reinforces what God's purposes are. In a very similar way, he writes, God's response to Cain in Genesis 4 of what's going to happen because of what he did that aligns Cain with one who has already been cursed, that serpent who we talked about in the series beforehand. And so we see this. We see even repetition of the words that God spoke to the serpent. Um, when he talked to Cain, he says, Cursed you are. Cursed you are, he tells Cain, as he did to the serpent. In Genesis 3, when he cursed the, um, the devil. Cursed you are. And so Cain is identified as a seed of the serpent here. And he stands with those who will be cursed, he writes. Um, later on, even recognized into this, the descendants of Ham, one of Noah's sons. Um, and those who dishonor Abraham and, 
and, and so on and so on and so on. This theme of murdering, of not pr promoting flourishing in life. All right? But Cain is a worker of the ground. That's how he's described of um, early on in Genesis 4. But now he is cursed from the ground. Now, we already know that the Lord had cursed the ground in, in, in what he dealt out in, in terms of curses in Genesis 3. Um, and to Cain, this is doubly falling upon him. There would be no fruitfulness at all for him. But I think one thing that we need to understand, friends, is that apart from the Lord and his mercies that he shows, not only to Christians but to mankind in general, there would be no fruitfulness at all in any work that we do. That fact that mankind, even the unregenerate, sees any fruitfulness or any productivity in their work, let's use that word, is a mercy of God. Is a mercy of God. But Cain is cursed from the ground. Um, Cain will, um, he won't have a home, he won't have a refuge. He doesn't have that in the Lord any longer. He has no place to hide. He'll be a wanderer, the scripture notes. Um, Proverbs 3, verse 6 um, speaks to this in many ways. He says in, in Proverbs 3, verse 6, In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. And that's exactly what Cain did not do. His paths were made crooked because of who he aligned himself with. And so we, one of the things that the author calls us to do is consider not only the sin of Cain and how that was um, played itself out in, in many ways, a foundational way, and not acknowledging God, not acknowledging God in his sacrifice, which not acknowledging God in the preparation for that, which would have included his work, um, ended up in judgment. Um, and that is a, a story that flows throughout all of Scripture. And we see that time and again and again. We see these, um, as the author writes, these propositional truths, these foundational truths that can be derived from a story like this and how it affects all, all of Adam's race under his original sin. And how work gets harder because God's judgment against sin. And so it's important for us on the outset here to understand why is work so hard? It's so hard because of sin. Not only has the ground been cursed and creation groans while waiting for Christ's return and release from man's futile sinfulness and the ways thereof. But mankind in that fallen state, our minds don't work the same way. We struggle at being creative. We have writer's block. Um, we, we don't remember well, and it gets worse as we age. Uh, we age. You know, all these things are, are a result of it, but our work is affected by that. That's the main point that, that at least come out of here in this early on in, in this chapter that the author has for us is that because of what happened in mankind falling, our work is affected. So that's one key way he talks about is understanding how our fallenness has affected work. 
But then he talks about, in, the, in chapter 2, the futileness of our work. Now, who here recognizes futileness in their, futileness in their work? Futility in their work, rather. Yeah. Amen. I don't really need to ask for a show of hands because we all know we struggle with this. Uh, there's times when we're wonder, not only are we doing this right, are we even doing, do we even know why we're doing what we're doing? Um, there's futility we have to deal with. So as he's walking through scripture, again, this is studies in biblical theology. His, so he, he starts off, um, the author here, in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is, now, any a fearful Christian would tell you they love all of Scripture, but some people really struggle with Ecclesiastes. And some people enjoy it. And some people enjoy it. They can't even explain why they enjoy it. But the message that we clearly get in Ecclesiastes is vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And that's what he's entitled this section in his chapter, is um, the vanity of, of what we're doing, especially in our work. I want to read what Ecclesiastes 2, verses 18 through 25 says. It says, the preacher writes, Solomon writes, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? You know, friends, one of the key messages that we get out of the book of Ecclesiastes is contentedness in the Lord. And what he has called by providence into being for you, for the individual. For this man... His life, and let's say it's this man's a, a, a brother, a brother in Christ. And, and he has certain blessings, earthly blessings that you don't have. It's a, a recognizing of God's sovereignty over all things and realizing and resting in that sovereignty and being content in it. And in that, content, in content, in that contentedness, if I could say that word, we read the words, there is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Whatever that is that has been designated and assigned to you. That brother who has these resources that you may not have, most likely it's because 
He also has a huge amount of responsibilities. And you may have more free time to work in service to your neighbor and to your brothers and sisters in Christ that he wishes he had. You know, there's, the grass is always greener is what the mentality or the attitude is we can often come away with. Be content and with what the Lord has given to us. But even in that, it requires wisdom. Because the Lord isn't telling us that, oh, you cannot stay, you must stay at your job and continue to be, you know, challenged with things that are not right and just deal with them. No, thankfully, where we are, we have the ability for some mobility and we can look around. But at the same time, we must also have that spirit of contentedness. And so you can see in some wise, and sometimes it's, these truths seem to go against each other, to be content in your work. And yet, should I find new work as an example? That requires wisdom and a humility before the Lord, how you do it. But even in that time of waiting on the Lord, because he loves to work out our faith through the requirement of being patient. We learn to be content. And what does that contentedness look like? It's, it's taking enjoyment and with what the Lord has given us. Even that toil that we have. Taking, if I dare say the word pride, in your work. Because you're working as unto the Lord. James Hamilton writes, the toilsome, laborious nature of the futility of life and work is this major theme that we see in the book of Ecclesiastes. And we see it in many other parts of Scripture throughout. We see it in Proverbs called out specifically as well. But we are told a good way to respond to these things. We are told a good way to respond to these things. You know, Ecclesiastes, he writes, wrestles with the realities that flow from God's word of judgment on man's work that we see again was dealt in Genesis 3. That work is going to be painful and frustrating. And, and then what happens? Death comes. In that, in that toilsome work that you did to, uh, you know, to build that house, someone else is going to live in it someday, perhaps. This is what he's the preacher's calling all his vanity. Yes, brother. It does. Yeah. Amen. It's a good word. Brother, if you couldn't hear him, um, was reminding us of what, is, again, the chief end of man. What is our chief man is to glorify God, enjoy him forever. And in the book of Ecclesiastes has that as its message is, as foundational as well. To enjoy God. And that's, of course, to the theme of what we're going through, even through our work. As we acknowledge God in all our ways, and we acknowledge him in our work and how we go about it, trying to reflect the character of God, there is enjoyment to be had. And then we're reminded also how our Lord himself is gentle and lowly. And we can cast our cares and our burdens upon him 
and those frustrations we have at work, and we can give them up to him and trust him in those things and take enjoyment in the work. The unbeliever does not have that grace of throwing his cares and anxieties to the Lord in his work. So there is vanity that we wrestle with. There is vanity that we definitely wrestle with. Um, the preacher, he says in Ecclesiastes 3.22, so I saw there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work. Now, again, we've got to remind ourselves, who's saying this? The wisest man besides Christ who arguably has ever lived. Most definitely up to the point of this, but as arguably as ever lived. Um, now, more wise than Adam? I, I don't know. Let's, I want to go uh, the, uh, the wisest man that was around. He said these words. Um, There's nothing better than a man um, than should joy, rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. And again, but how do we do that? We do it through our enjoyment of God. Not through that connection that we have with him. Go, eat your bread with joy, he writes, and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. How does he already approve what you do? What do you think he means there? How do we know that he's already approved it? Well, assuming it's not something that's rebellious and sinful, right? Um, because you are doing it in his providence, okay? Especially in the sense of as a believer, following him. You're the one who's already struggling with understanding this from a biblical way anyways. Resting in him. So God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. All the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life. And in your toil at which you toil under the sun, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Nothing like that in the grave. Do it with all your might, he writes. The preacher does. Um, that's encouragement. To a good reminder of not doing this in our own strength, but as we lean on the Lord and ask him to help us with our, in acknowledging our deficiencies, to, to be pursuing excellence in our work, as we should be pursuing excellence in all that we do in Christ. So, um, there is nothing better that a man should eat or drink and enjoy his work. And if one can do this, it is God's gift to him even in the making of many books in the study, so wearisome to the flesh. You know, these are his parting thoughts as he finishes out the book of Ecclesiastes. Again, um, acknowledging God in your work. Um, and then we see in the Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, as we walk along, uh, the, the teaching that we have there from the Lord. You know, how do we work wisely? Um, you know, how can we be diligent um, he gives um, examples, Lot, lots of it. He's, our house is being built up by lady wisdom. 
Um, and then we see the other house out there being built up as Madam Folly. Uh, those who enter Lady Wisdom's home find life. See that in Proverbs 9. And those who go to Madam Folly, what do they do? They die. And, of course, that is also applied to our work. Um, scripture talks about and to, to take notice of the ant, that simple and humblest of beings, and yet knows how to prepare, to observe these things that we have before us and take note of it. And one of the messages here is to stop and think and ponder these things. Don't just go through your, your lives uh, in, um, in, in automation and, and not think about what it is you're doing, especially in, as we're talking about in the idea of work. You know, they commit those things to the Lord, seeking out wisdom. Um, fathers were commanded in Deuteronomy 6, verse 7, to teach their sons the law of God. To teach their sons the law. Kings were instructed in Deuteronomy 17 to know and to walk by this same law. And throughout the community, and ancient Israel, Old Covenant, Israel, the king was, as Hamilton acknowledges and observes, the king was like a father of the nation. And so we see King Solomon even, um, son of David, heir to these promises that were given um, to David, is acting here as an obedient and fatherly king instructing his sons in the law throughout the book to apply to all areas of life, including one's work and what one toils with. Uh, to avoid those pitfalls in life where our pride comes in and where we see the things that the world has and we desire things more than Christ himself and those become our pursuit rather than the Lord God himself. They twist the way we look at our work and our work can become, you, you can look at a man and you think, well, that guy's got great work ethic. He works hard. He works long hours. But to what end if he doesn't know the Lord? What is he trying to build up? Is there a treasure in heaven that he's working on? No. No, he's building up something that, as Solomon has already identified, is something that's vain and will be passing. Um, we, it's always from the heart that one derives and understands is where is wisdom in what they're doing. Because that man can look like he's wise as he works and portrays a good work ethic, but it's from the heart that instructs these things. And so that's where we're aligning ourselves, instructing our, our own hearts to be aligned with what God says in his word. Then he talks about Proverbs 31, you know, women in work. Um, he says, with the chapter opening in verse chapter 31, and with its closing, there are statements of what a blessing this woman is to her husband. How her work is framed as though she is helping him to work and keep his garden. That was the role that was given to woman in the garden and the way of God has ordered things. Um, you know, 
Hamilton writes here, he says, Proverbs 31 does not speak of unmarried women, not in this context at this point, um, though it certainly inculcates the expectation that single ladies will aspire to be the kind of wife that's described here. Um, the book of Ruth describes the situation of a single woman, doesn't it? And how she responded in faith. Uh, Paul gives instructions for widows, um, young widows, old widows, in 1 Timothy, and, and even those who might not ever marry. This, this Old Testament covenant community, James writes, uh, provided a family structure that finds its new covenant analog in the church, the family of God. So even though Proverbs 31 is really talking about this, this woman who has a family that's helping her husband provide for and um, as she works diligently, um, there is wisdom here to be found for all women in applying to the work in that diligence, acknowledging what God has called them to. So he certainly brings up um, this, this, um, this, this woman in Proverbs 31 that we all look to and, and admire. Um, some of the things, the characteristics this woman is doing in her work is uh, she rises up early. She rises up early. Um, so, you know, that certainly she doesn't sleep in. She provides food for her household while her husband is standing in the city. And his, you could say his virtue is increased even by his wife's hard work. Um, her children and her husband rise up to bless her and praise her. She's not seeking that, but that is a byproduct of it. Again, she is working as unto the Lord. She wants to please him. There is that curse of her desire being for her husband, but God's mercy in working out one's, a woman's um, desire to be pleasing to him, helping her to make her desire for Christ, in whom all the answers are, and who she finds her ultimate fulfillment in. And so she works as unto him, and as a result, her family is blessed. She thoughtfully considers fields she might purchase for fruitful cultivation. She sells merchandise she worked hard to produce a profit for. She's generous with it. So there's this, this hard work that this woman is doing, um, fulfilling her role and helping her husband in keep and work the garden, so to speak. The last section he talks about in this chapter is one of flourishing. And when he does, and he talks here about here flourishing, he gives some examples from Scripture. Uh, examples from Joseph, Daniel, from Nehemiah, and of Ruth. And so we'll just kind of look at some of these. For Joseph, right? You know, um, a godly example here in work, uh, in work for sure. Um, you know, here we have a man that was fell victim if you, to other people's sin. Um, and, and yet, in that, the story, that backdrop of that story, he remains faithful to God. And God blesses the fruitfulness of his endeavors as he acknowledges God in his work. Um, and through that, his family is blessed. The whole world is blessed because they have food in that famine, that time of famine. If Hamilton writes, he says, if Joseph's desire was to possess the land of promise, his reality was, was truly 
something different. His reality was being sold as a slave and taken to Egypt. If his desire was to perpetuate the line of the seed of the woman through his offspring, his reality was to be married to the daughter of an Egyptian priest. If Joseph sought God's blessing by the world's standard of measure, it would seem that he was cursed. And yet, we never read of any sins Joseph committed in regard to playing out this role in Egypt. Now, certainly we can argue about the way he taunted his brothers if he did, but Scripture doesn't call it a sin. We don't have that in Scripture saying that. We can actually be guilty sometimes of isogeting into the text there if we are, but still, um, when he was fulfilling his promises in the land of Egypt, unknowingly, trusting the Lord, he was faithful, and God brought blessing on the lives of the people around him. Uh, Daniel. Daniel is a very similar story. Joseph was sold into slavery, thrown in a pit. Daniel was faithful, one of the first exiles that came out of uh, Jerusalem to Babylon. He himself, in faithfulness, was thrown into a pit. Um, and we see his, um, his tenacity and his faith to hold on despite the culture around him, desiring to see him fall. He had that, that strong acknowledgement in the Lord, that, that trust in him, and it kept him with the task at hand. And he was given much work to do. He was put over much in the land of Babylon. God used him. He used his friends as models of faithfulness. Um, and so we have that example in Daniel as well. Uh, Nehemiah. You know, there's a lot could be said about Nehemiah. Um, that even as a, um, a type of Christ, uh, Hamilton comments here, about the way he must have been a man of Bible study and prayer for the book that bears his name to read as it does. And we see also similarities with Nehemiah's life with Joseph and, and, and Daniel um, serving in foreign courts. For, and so that, that's one of the things that he brings out is the life and work of Nehemiah. Uh, you know, what do we see in Nehemiah? Um, this was a man who uh, was constant in prayer. He recognized God's hand at work in his own work, despite the, the faithlessness at times of the people given the work to do. He had to come back a couple times. And chastise um, the people and the leaders there. And that took courage, trusting the Lord in the work that he had given to him to do. Um, he knew he didn't have the strength to do himself. God used him as he had promised he would. Um, then we, closing up this little section here, we talk about Ruth. Um, uh, she says in Ruth, verse 5 of chapter 3, um, talking to Naomi. Because Naomi's trying to tell her how to behave around Boaz. You remember the story. And what does she says? All that you say I will do. Here's a Moabite woman who had took upon 
the faith of her, her family, of her in-laws, uh, her mother-in-law, her, you know, her husband had died. And, and she goes with her to this strange land. And her attitude is, what you, will, you say I will do. And she also was persistent to keep um, purity in her role. You know, Hamilton suggests some of the things that Naomi was telling her to do was not the wisest thing to do. In fact, encouraging her to perhaps even seduce Boaz. And yet, she did this thing gently and secretly, not in the open. And Boaz recognized that, and he wished to keep her, um, her reputation pure and make her and telling her to go away before the men wake up in the morning. Again, I'm assuming you remember the story of Ruth, but all, it, all to say in, in the interest of time here is we have a woman here, example of Ruth, who, and then it's a very exhilarating story, uh, Ruth. Um, this, uh, an example of a single female, uh, a widow at that, at work. Um, and right, James Hamilton says the following observations can be made here. She, he says, first, Ruth sought work authorized by the law of Moses. She gleaned the fields. She wanted to stay within what she said, remember, your God will be my God. She wanted to fulfill and, and be obedient to these rules. So she sought work authorized by the law of Moses. Second, she worked hard in the service, not only of herself, but also to the benefit of her mother-in-law who was dependent upon her. Again, part of the blessings of our work is we, we have provision for those who depend upon us. And then thirdly, she worked in, a, in such a way that she gained a good reputation among her fellow workers and in the community at large. Uh, the, the fellow Israelites in that town that lived there knew she was a Moabite woman, and yet they had respect for her because of what she was doing for her mother-in-law and in the way she went about her work even. God blessed it even through her work. Blessed her, that is. And then fourth and finally, Hamilton writes, she worked in a way that was sexually pure. And again, regarding that, that advice that um, Naomi gave to, to let know, Boaz know that she, he's a kinsman redeemer. She, she was careful about that, uncovering his feet. Um, preserving chastity, he writes, even as she honored Naomi at the same time. So God blessed her. So the parting words that we get here um, in this chapter as I close up is that in, this is focusing mostly work under a view of an old covenant. Now next week, Stephen's going to talk about it, work and more in the view of in the new covenant uh, and what that looks like. Both, of course, in a fallen world, but one that's been redeemed by Christ in many ways for us believers. So there is still man's responsibility of work that remains despite the fallen world around us. And we can't not let that discourage us from pursuing excellence in it. But we do this even as we see an example in Ruth to be faithful in obeying what God has called us to do. You know, not lying. To have integrity in our work. To hate a bribe to fear God and not man to pursue honest um, work not shameful work all these things 
that we see that apply even to our lives today that we certainly saw in the lives of these examples of these people under the old covenant. And so next week we'll learn more what it means more detail under the new covenant.